Hello all and welcome back to another episode of Life of Brian. We are proudly brought to you by Grimley's, the number one source for fasteners and construction supplies. Hello, Father. What's your, what's your name? Harrison. Harrison. Harrison Taylor, long time no see. Yes. Uh, you've brought me here today. What are we talking about today? Who have we got on, anyone? Uh, we've got a few of your old um, Paran mates on. Ah, a couple the, of them. Yeah, the president and the runner from your Paran days. and uh, The general manager, G- the only GM. full-time employee of Paran and the runner, Johnny Clarkson, famously a Brighton real estate agent now. Yeah, I've heard many stories of the Paran days. Some yes. have been a little bit um, hard to believe and sketchy, and we're going we're gonna to debunk all of that. But first, I just want to re- get, get into some footy chat. Yep. Um, the first cab off the rank, and it was from a few weeks ago now, but you wanted to talk a little bit about the GWS finish to the game and the fact that they didn't realise. Well, you know, well, you know here, the, I know what you're referring to. So you tell me, what are elite AFL clubs all about? What are they all about well, with their training and their processes? Well, every club's sort of getting to that stage of marginal gains. We're looking for any so, competitive there advantage. You go. Marginal gains. How small do you think some of the gains are for some of the things they do? Oh, some of the more intricate things, you know, weighing food, uh, diet specific stuff, training, T- tiny time, tiny time gains. Management. But nevertheless, gains. And rightly so, the, you know, professional athlete, that's what they look at as gains. Well, GWS. You know, not that long ago in their last game, round 24, I couldn't believe this. I don't know internally for a fact that it was or wasn't said, but I'm guessing from the outlook of the players. So here they are, GWS playing for a spot in the eight against Carlton. They have to win to make the finals. So that's their number one aim, to win the game so they make the finals. Win it by one point, win it by 100. It doesn't matter. Just win the game. They got to 26 points up at three-quarter time. It could have been 27, but around 26 points at three-quarter time. And then 10 minutes into the final quarter, they're 42 points up. They kicked the first three goals of the final quarter, right? Now, I'm thinking at this stage, and the commentary is all around, the commentary at this stage is all around a home final. They kick one more goal or two more goals than they've got now. This is halfway through the quarter. And they not only win the game, but they get a home final in Sydney not playing in Melbourne like they're going to be this weekend or next weekend. So I just can't believe that someone from the coaching staff either wouldn't have mentioned it at three-quarter time when the game was in control, 26 points up, 43 in the first 10 so, minutes So you're last. saying the, the viewer at home is knowing about it because the commentator The viewer at home is sitting there in his chair and, and is going, come on, guys, you just got to kick two more goals and you've got a home final. But you don't think the playing group knew? I don't think the playing group knew. I don't think the coaching staff made mention of it from the way I viewed it because they were three goals up and then they just stopped. And then they just said, that's it, fellas. We're packing it in. We've got the win now. We're 43 up. That's all we need. We've got a final next week. Fantastic. Two more goals and on the on the, on the the wave that they were surfing at that time would have been like another five or ten minutes of absolutely committed play. So I just can't believe that in this day and age of professionalism and small and tiny gains, that at that stage when the game was under control, that one of the coaches wouldn't have got a message out there to the senior players or even told them at three-quarter time, hey, if this happens, we are still a chance here for a home final. I don't think it was mentioned. I reckon it's a, it's a, uh, 
it's a bit of a slip up from the hierarchy there. I don't know who. Yeah, bit of a slip up. Yep. Would it have mattered for GWS? Of course it would. You kidding? <laughs> Playing a home final in Sydney as distinct from coming to Melbourne. Are you kidding? But I mean, are they going to win the grand final? Uh, no. <laughs> no, but they might have had a chance, a better chance of winning their yeah. first final. Well said. Next topic is um, Buddy's big send-off and his lap of honour. Great, wasn't it? I was up there, went to the SCG, did that game for seven. Fantastic to be there. What a culmination of a, an incredible athlete, an incredible football player, you know, um, you know, a thousand goals, you know, fourth all time. Um, just lovely, fantastic to watch him and his family enjoy the lap of honour. Um, I was truly, you know, chuffed for him. Um, you know, the affection he got from Coach John Longmire, from some past players, uh, from the crowd. Um, was truly amazing. You know, that game I think had over 40,000 people come. Now, that game wouldn't have got 40,000 if Buddy wasn't doing a lap of honour. I tell you, it would have been 25, 26, 27,000. So uh, he was able to draw them through the gates. Just one little thing at the end, other than everything going perfectly for Buddy. And by the way, congratulations to Buddy for stepping to the plate and saying, yeah, I'll be there to say goodbye to the fans because there was some doubt as to whether he wanted to do it. There's always a but with you. Yeah, but. And now the other thing is, please, this is what happens when clubs organise events rather than the AFL organising because it was a home game for Sydney. Did you watch it? Did you see the vision of it? I saw videos afterwards, but I didn't watch it live. I counted 35 people on the ground surrounding him as he walked the lap of honour. I thought that took away the centre of focus from him and his family walking. Right. Piss him off. It should have been like a Anzac Day, Toyota, Hilux Ute, that type of thing, or just walking by themselves. Oh, forget all that. Just piss all the hangers on off. Get rid of them all. There were PR people for Sydney. There were social media people for Sydney. There were people just for being people. I don't know who they were. And a big clump of people were following him around. Why did they? Why were they number one allowed to be on the Oval? And why, number two, spoil the occasion and not let the, the, the spotlight shine brightly on this superstar and his family? And that's, I just thought at the end, it just took away from what could have been even better than what it was. Yep, well said. Um, next one is the All-Australian team, which was announced recently. Yep, been a lot of talk about that for a couple of weeks now, and finally we've got a team. Yep, um, so we're not going to talk about who'd made it, who didn't make it, and all that stuff. We wish Because want- that's subjective, isn't it? It is. It's very subjective, and there was definitely some snubs um, and some well-deserving people that got on that team, but we want to talk about more, what does it mean to a player in this the, the awards spectrum? Yeah, it's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought of it that way, but for me, yeah. What does it mean to be an All-Australian player? I reckon, quite possibly, it's the next best thing to winning a premiership. It's close with a best and fairest. A best and fairest in the premiership year, if you win a best and fairest and your team wins the premiership, I think that's nearly the best personal trinket you slash about, Are you forgetting award. about the Brownlow? Forget the Brownlow for the moment, that you can win. Your best and fairest in a premiership year is a big one. That's why Jason Dunstall was so, was so brilliant and many other, Wayne Carey, I think, as well. But, um, 
Yeah. So from that point of view, what does the All Australian mean? I think it's I think it's closely followed follows those. I think it is. Um, I think it is. Uh, it's not the absolute top of a player's career, but if you make All Australian, you are a bloody good player, and you can actually say that you are the best person at playing that particular position in the competition for that particular year. That's pretty bloody good, isn't it? It if, is. If you line up at fullback or full forward, you are the best player in that position in the competition. So so you think it ranks with the more team-based awards, but yes, it's not necessarily – It's not a team award, I know. It's an individual thing, but I think it's almost it's almost uh, uh, evidence of great team play uh, that year. So I think your teammates are very happy for you. I think the whole football world looks at this, particularly those that are involved from club to club, looks at this and goes, this is, this is a very, very important so award. So you're saying it's more important or a bigger chip on the shoulder than well, do you know that the Brownlow of the twenty-three or twenty-four players named, one of those is going to be the Brownlow medalist, and a number of them are going to be best and fairest at their own club, right? So you know, look at it that way. That's full of best, and it'll be full of best and fairest. It'll have the Brownlow medal winner in it as well. It's got the Coleman medal winner in it. It's pretty bloody good. If you if you make all Australian, you are a high achiever in the sport, and I really rate and rank. All Australian selection really high, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and while we're talking about teams and making teams and the best, where do you rate it? Oh, oh. as a spectator watching football, because you know, let's face it, that's all you've been. As you've been saying for the last four episodes, it doesn't matter what I think. Nobody, nobody gives a shit. It's your opinion that matters. So, um, but oh. I think it's yeah, it's obviously a massive honour. Um, yeah, the premiership. All right, move on. One. Sitting on the fence. See, this is why I don't ask you any questions. Because when I do ask you a question, you go and park your ass firmly on the pickets and get poleaxed by them, and you, you can't put out a decent answer. Apologies. <laughs> Moving on. So, yeah, as we're talking about selections for teams, mm. finals commentary, or at least the grand final, who gets picked, and and what is the lead up to that to that person getting picked? What do you mean who gets picked? So we're talking about so. Collingwood are picking their team this week. Who's seven selecting for oh, Friday night, or who's se- oh. how does the process between selecting Ooh. commentators? This is and a very uh, broadcast participants for the big the big day, the grand final. This is a very close to the line. Um, uh, to tell you get the, off the picket fence, mate. To, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure how they do it. I don't assume that I'm doing it. I don't know that I'm doing it contractually. There is nothing in my contract, and as far as I know, there is nothing in anyone else's contract at seven that says that they are entitled to do um, whatever games they are. You know, Anzac Day, Grand Final, Prelim. You just get selected based on on what the Channel Seven hierarchy wants you to do, and I would assume that boils down to you having a good year. You need to be you need to be in form. You need to be. Doing well, and I think that's how they select it. I, I, one thing I do know is on Grand Final Day, I think just about everyone in the team. In fact, I would say everyone in the team is doing something because there are shows from about ten or eleven o'clock in the morning right through to yeah, six at night. Gets to go. So everyone is involved in the broadcast somewhere along the line. Yeah, but it also the other thing you said, you've got to be informed and all that stuff. What about continuity in the team? They're not just going to put yeah. a bunch of commentators that haven't called together throughout the year. On grand final day. So is there a team that the sort of works best? Actually, is- you're right. You're right. Um, I know. Chemistry, it's, a, it's a, rare, a rare thing that you're right. But uh, chemistry is really important. It would be risky 
even though there would there have been interchanging teams all year on seven. Like I've called with a number of different people um, on a Sunday, for instance, and so has JB and and Dars and Haim. Um, you know, Alistair Nicholson and Jason Bennett. All these guys are involved. So, uh, what was your question again? Uh- <laughs> The team. How does the team get selected? Yeah, yeah. well, it just gets selected. Yeah, you're right. There's got to be a chemistry element to it and so it would be crazy not to take. So I think it's probably more than an individual now you now you, you put it like that. It's a team that gets selected yep. rather than so an individual. So is that the Thursday, Friday night, yeah. Saturday Well, it has, it has been predominantly the Friday night team. Um, yep. Over the years that I've been at seven, I don't know what the history has been prior to that, um, but it appears that it's the Friday night team. But I can honestly tell you now, right now as I stand here, you know, three or four weeks before the grand final, I don't know whether I'm doing the grand final. Yeah, th- th- This is a thing that will be up in the air. This is a decision that will be made by the network as to which team should be doing the Friday night grand final because but, you're right, chemistry is of ultra importance. In but this. as you said, everyone's probably going to have a role from yes. a talent perspective. Yep. And on grand final day, obviously they like to get um, a few ancillary people from club land that maybe we haven't seen in the media. Yeah, and they try a few players out for, that are retired, et cetera. Yeah. For example, say if – Carlton play in the grand final, who's someone that you'd really like to hear from that isn't really in the media? Like maybe like an Anthony Kudafidis. What, what like, do you mean as a special comments person? Yeah, a special comments person or you get a, Harrison, you go throw to him once during a game. Harrison, or, yeah, okay, for once or twice you could do it. But to, to blend them in the team without any uh, practice games, so to speak, is a really difficult thing. And the grand final day is not the day to be trying, I guess, new things. It's it's too important, you know. It's it's not it's not Kitty's day where we're where we're coaching a, a recently retired player to to do the job. Yeah. Um. You've got to be ready to go and do do it at grand final level at the Bruce McAvaney level. Everyone's got to be at the Bruce McAvaney level. Got to be at their absolute best on yep. grand final day. So I'm just not sure. You know, having said that, who would I want for to make one or two comments throughout the day? Um. That is a very, very good question. Paddy Dangerfield has been, given that they're not taking part this year, he's been good. Yep. He's been good with what he said. I'll tell you what, front bar oh, quite a few weeks ago now, they had um, Ange, Chris Du. Chris Du, yeah. And Anthony Kudafidis. Yeah. And I thought that was some of the best 15 minutes of television of the year. If yeah. you had them two on grand final day and Carlton playing in it, even if Carlton are playing in it, I reckon they should have a spot. Yeah, uh, yeah, they were hilarious. Yeah, they're, they're funny guys. Both of them are very, very funny guys. Were very funny guys when they were playing, uh, too. But I, I'm just not sure in a on a serious sort of uh, yes, thing. I know. Uh, and uh, yeah, Captain Serious is clocking off now. I, but I just want you, you to know. I think the important thing to know is that, from my understanding, that is that there is no right to the berth on Grand Final Day for any person within the seven team. It's got to be earned. Right, so moving on and Captain Sirius clocking off here. Yeah. What have you been doing this week? You've had a little bit of a – obviously there's no games. What have you been doing during the week? Lighting fires. What, I, I've I've lit fire after fire. What, I've, are you, what are you burning? I've effectively burnt 22 acres down in Lawn um, because it's a perfect time. It was We had a bit of rain. The ground was a little moist and um, I'd, I'm cutting down – well, I won't say trees, but let's say brush. Um, shrub. 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 Uh, they look like trees, but they're shrub, um, and and burning them because I'm getting ready for the what I think is going to be a really hot summer, 
Uh, a lot of people are not interested in what I'm saying about this, but it's going but to you're be. Prepare, you're fire preparing. Fire, Is that what you're I'm, doing? Or I'm you fire preparing, up? and I had some massive fires going. Oh, you know how I start. You know how you start wet material. You get some dry material. You put it at the bottom of the fire. You get your um, blower, your still blower, battery blower. You put the match in, and you just you gently blow. <sighs> and you get more and more fierce and it pushes the flame under and all of a sudden it just explodes into a bundle of joy and burns the shit out of the whole thing. And I had burnt massive fires. I'm talking the size Are of- Are there a, multiple fires going could, on at once? Like, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you could imagine the size of a tip truck, like I'm talking that size fire. I had three of those going at once. I've got a semi-trailer size fire to burn next week before it gets- Because I think it's going to be too dry to burn in spring. So if you're- you're on land out there. Don't think you're going to get it done in spring this year. It's going to be too dry. You've got to do it right now while there's a bit of moisture on the ground. I get great joy. I burnt my forehead. I've, got, I've blistered up my forehead. Jesus. I burnt that and I, I had this jumper on and I've got holes all burnt in it because ash was landing on me and everywhere. And this sounds like fun to you. And all the tourists are coming past on the Great Ocean Road. There's busloads of them. They're, 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 they're pulling out the buses as if there's a wildfire going on. And, and there is a wildfire going And they're taking photos on. and they can see kangaroos. They think I'm burning the kangaroos, but of course the kangaroos, it's a, it's an optical illusion. They're parked up the back. But this is the shit you do on your day off. Yeah. You, you, you... I've had a battery steel chainsaw going all day. Wow. And it has been you... fantastic. I've got scratches and shit all over me from the Blackberry and I'm really cut up, but uh, that's what I've done. I remember when we back on the farm one day and I remember this day very vividly because I was actually home from school. I was sick. Probably the only sick day I've ever had. And you were doing some burning off. I'm not sure if you had anyone helping you, but this long story short, and I'll let you tell a bit of the story, but the CFA came. Um, well, and yeah. To, and- I mean, I started the fire and my wife said to me, before you start the fire, Brian, I think it's a bit windy today and I don't think you should start the fire because I think it'll get out of control. I said, Tanya, please. I am a farmer. I'm a primary producer. I know what I'm doing. I'm experienced with matches. And <laughs> matches. I, I went out to the paddock and I had to burn off this over overgrown paddock and I let it rip. And you know what I didn't realize is that when the wind is tricky, that is one minute's blowing south, the next minute it's blowing southwest, and then the next minute it's southeast, is that the fire front broadens. And you all of a sudden, instead of having a nice controllable 10-meter fire front, you've all of a sudden got a 100-meter fire front. And I hadn't- and this is just you. Yeah, this is just me. I hadn't thought to take any equipment out in case it got out of hand. So I grabbed my jumper off. And I'm trying to put it out with my jumper, realizing that I was overpowered. I quickly, on the four wheeler, went back to the house, got some fire hoses, hooked them all up, joined them all together. So I had about 200 meters. While this fire is growing. While this fire is growing in size. And by the time I'd got the hose out there, the thing had exploded. The fences were burning. Trees were catching fire. Um, The stables were under severe threat, as was. Tanya and the house. And now we're worried about embers going to other properties. Tanya <laughs> is all of a sudden gathering the horses together and getting them float bound, ready to get out. And she said, I, and I come running back in the house. I said, call the fire brigade. Now we're calling the fire brigade. <laughs> well, it's embarrassing if you call the fire brigade because they're all the local, you know, in the CFA, they're all your local friends and yeah. people that come to the fire and they say, what the hell are you doing? Anyway, they come and put it out in about five minutes. It was just a grassy that got going. But um, uh, I had to give them a slab or something for coming. But they 
they have to write reports and say how bad you are and everything. Can you go down in a book or something? I don't know. But anyway, that's that's that was farm about fifteen. years I reckon ago. if there's a CFA book, there'd be a few black marks against your name. No, with the that's CFA. the only one that's ever got out of control. Yeah. So beautiful. anyway, I'm very careful now. I only burn when I look at the weather forecast and when it's been raining the night before. All right, getting on with it. This is something that is a little bit rogue and Ooh. probably not something that we've done too much of yet, but we would like to do it in the future. We're doing a deep dive on a topic or a period of your life, mm. and we're looking at that period just after you retired from from Collingwood, so from 91 to 93, where you I played can, with the Paran Football Club. I can see the guys here from Paran. I know what period it is, and I know you're explaining to the audience, but this this is a setup. This is a setup. This is a setup this is right a de- This is start. a deep dive. I knew nothing about this. And you're going to be exposed big time. All right. Well, so what these guys? So do people understand that I even played in the VFA, and do they know what the VFA was? Tell us what the VFA is. So in the days of the AFL had just started, been going two years. So the VFL was prior to that. Um, when I retired in 1990. So when I retired in 1990, I went and played the be- the next best level of football I could play, and that was the VFA. It wasn't. The, so wh- why did you do that? Did, were you, did you want to get paid, well, or you just still love footy? I was or? twenty-seven or something. Thought I had a little bit to offer. Still young. Wanted to test myself out as a coach, a possible coach. Wasn't sure what I was doing. I was a plumber at the time, so I took a job coaching the Paran Football Club, who are the equivalent now to Port Melbourne, Williamstown. It was a suburban-based comp, but it was the best. Sunday football, live telecast of one game per week. It was big. They'd get crowds of 10,000 to a game. So it was. So the level was, of footy was pretty. It pretty was good. the best competition outside the VFL ones. It was better than the reserves. It was better than that. We had legends in this competition. Fred Cook, uh, just to name one, was yeah. an absolute legend down there at Port, uh, Port Melbourne. There, there are many, many others that have uh, provided good players. And you coming off, freshly off, you know, still playing good footy in Collingwood, just. Being injured, injured was holding you back. So 1991, this is. Were, were you dominating in this in this league? Like we did, did you I feel dominate? Big, did you feel bigger and stronger than than the players, or was it um, a rougher game? Or a no, it was a rougher game. There was no doubt that it was a. Uh, there were less rules in this particular game. It was a, it was a little clumsy. You could get away with some shit. You could get away with some stuff uh, in there. So it it certainly had a little bit of that. The level of competition was high, but I soared above the level of competition on most games. And how was your body? What I thought. What, what? My body, I was on one leg yep. for my entire three years at Paran. <laughs> These guys are pissing themselves laughing in the background yeah. here because I'm up on myself. No, no, I, look, I was buggered when I went there. My knee was knackered. So. And at this time, you're juggling uh, a newly born son, Ryan, um, in 89, and then Jordan came along in 92. You've just you've just retired from football, so there's a massive financial loss. Yep. You're probably juggling multiple jobs. You said yep. you're a plumber. Yep. I know you're working at, at Ray Quincy's motorbike dealership. You're also doing radio, so starting your media career. So don't ever say to me again that I couldn't multitask because there you go. In one hit, you've just done the whole thing. So. Yeah, you're, you're super impressive. Anyway. Tell me what that was like. And, and What, multitasking? No, just the balance of life. The you pressure know. was hard. It was, you know, to earn a dollar was hard and that's ultimately why I went to Pran and played and it was a you know money had a little bit to do with it and it was a sounded like you're filling your pockets something that I knew no that wasn't wasn't great paying sort of thing it was just uh, something you went and did and I wanted to continue playing and being involved in the best competition the highest level I possibly could so that's ultimately why I went to Pran where these two guys fit in I'll I'll introduce them Richard Smith uh, was the first um, uh, our uh, sorry our second full-time but he was our only full-time 
person at the club. He was the general manager, um, so he, he was brought on as a full-time general manager, the only full-time employee at the club. Smithy, good afternoon. Welcome to you. Take Come in close to that microphone, mate. Coming in, mate. Yeah, so uh, you were the uh, you were the general manager at Pran at the time. What what were the, what were the years? Come in nice and close to that microphone. I'm not going to tell you again. <laughs> Sounds like thirty years ago. I started end of ninety two. Mm-hmm. I was appointed, and I went to pre season ninety four before I left. Right. I went and took a role at St Kilda. So right. ninety three season. So you were the you were the general manager then. Johnny Clarkson was with me for the entire time. At Paran, the entire time that I was there for the three odd years that I was there, he was our runner and our fitness guru. Clarko, welcome to you. Thanks, BT. Many would know Clarko because he's a bit of a Brighton operator down there in Bay Street. He's the head wobbler. He's the real Wobble. real estate kingpin down there. He's waiting for them to do a show down there called Lux Listings or something like that. Clarko. Oh, it was great. And you, great and you times, were all, BT. and you were also our runner at Pran as well. So you had a lot to do. I think you're involved in selection, the whole thing, weren't you? You saw everything, didn't you? I did from the start. And actually, it's interesting. The first night I ever went down, we trained at Como Park. Yes, that's Back right. Back in the pre-season, it was fairly open in terms of the invitation. So we turned up the first night, and it was the best uh, and first opportunity. I'd met the great man through Steve Peary. We had 150 at training at Como Park. It was absolutely unbelievable. And not all of them duds. So we yeah. actually then had to cut from 150 down to our, our playing squad. So our fun times are good times. And my memory of Paran Harrison was that we, oh, I guess you could call it a raid, we felt where could we get – because if coming out of the VFL or the AFL if it was then, you had to pay a lot of money to get a player. We didn't necessarily have a lot of money. Um, so we thought where can we get players that are probably still pretty good but – didn't command as much money. And we went, remember, we went and raided the Ammos, didn't we? Mm. Uh, Division One Ammos. And we got a lot of good players Tommy Shelton, Tommy Kuypert, these sort of people. A lot of people out there will know who they are. A lot of those blokes, of course, had Simon Lennox. Simon Lennox, all those blokes there that had been not only top, top age uh, amateur players, they'd won premier premierships, they'd won the equivalent of the uh, Brownline medal in there. So they were stars of the competition. Played reserves footy at VFL clubs. All of them. So all we, we were heavily Johnny stocked. Markoff. So yeah, we're, we we're, we're pretty stacked on this list. Yeah. You mentioned a few names there that I, I sort of recall, and this is another massive thing that I'm really interested in with the Pram Football Club, and not just on the field in terms of names, but off the field as well and what they've done now, the, this playing group of this period. I, I'm I, just going to reel off some hang names. On, hang on, I, I would think we, we had the most successful group of people that went on to do inspiring and important things after they left the Pran Football Club. Would you agree with that? Well, there was 1415 that... In a lot of a lot of households would be household names. Yep. So we're going to mention them. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to list them off, and you guys chime in. So Rod Cutler, we spoke about here in episode one, best hairdresser in the world, in the currently world. working in New York, does all the big uh, names over there. Oprah, you name it. He is simply the best hairdresser in the world. Sam Pang. Well, everyone knows Sam, don't they? Front bar. Well, I do. And interesting. Uh, enough with Sam Pang. He was about the fifth funniest bloke at the club. Yeah. And <laughs> give us an idea of the level of football that Sam Pang churned out. Not nearly as great as what he's uh, self-defined <laughs> himself. He he actually had a fair crack. He was actually a reasonable player. He never actually played senior football, but oh, with so his he self played with, in the reserves. With, he, he did play in the reserves. Oh, you'd so think why after are we talking, talking about him? him? Well, you'd oh. think after talking to him, he played 250 games <laughs> in one free listeners. Yeah. No, I didn't think he'd played a senior game. I thought he was a bit of a plotter, back pocket sort of style. Um, uh, David Noble. Now everyone knows that Dave Noble went on coach North Melbourne. Harrison. He was he was pretty good and was in a senior assistant at many clubs prior to that. Adelaide Western Bulldogs. You name it. He was and now is the chief of uh, of the V8 uh, Supercars. V8 Supercars. Is so, that right? Yep. Wow. One, he, he was 
He was recruited directly from Fitzroy, I think, at the time. He was, and coached North Melbourne, of course, as senior coach yep. there. Yep. Simon Lennox? Well, Simon Lennox was one of those guys we're talking about the amateurs. He was probably the best player in the amateurs at the time. Star. In I the think amateurs. he tried out at maybe Collingwood, was tried it? Tried out at Collingwood. Played and in the seconds, maybe? According to him, it was out of Gavin Brown or him who would get the last spot. <laughs> yeah. And so he, he was a, he was our he ended up being our best player. So he's a pub and a club owner now, owns the Osborne where Pip Squeak, who we met last week yep. on the episode, he hangs out a lot. Yep. So he's a he's a club owner. Been a was a security guard at many of these um Infamous ven- venues for years and years, uh, Simon Lennox. Dale Tapping. Dale Tapping. Special bloke taps. Uh, currently assistant coach at Essendon. had a bit of a, a health setback, but he's been in footy. He was at Collingwood. He was at Brisbane. He's been at football post that life, also close, close in the amateurs. He has, he's had 20 years in AFL stroke VFL football since that time. As an assistant coach. Mm-hmm. Tony Wilson. I don't know that name, but. No, I don't either. Well, well I know Tony, but I didn't know that. Examiner that... 2 uh, is an author, uh, has been on 3OW. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. So quite a big name in his own mind. Yeah. Who else? Uh, Carl Delina. Carl Delina. Well, he was the CEO at North Melbourne, of course. Uh, do you know Do you know Carl Delina, Richard? I do remember him. Um, small Rover. Yep. War number four. He had uh, aspirations on probably being a corporate yep. more than footy, and I'm not surprised he ended up in a reasonably high <laughs> footy admin role. The one that's not on that list is Mark Evans. Mark Evans. Evans. Yeah, Mark Evans is now the CEO of Gold Coast Footy Club, yep. was high up at the AFL um, and at Hawthorne. Um, he was there as well. Um, another one that was there was Darren Birch, who was an executive member of the AFL in the top three or four or top handful at the AFL for a long time he was there. Anyone else? Mick Sinney, Australia's best postie. List and medalist. Also won the list of medalists. Yeah. Uh, Paul Tudnam, who's a board member at the Collingwood Football Club now, was there. John Araglasio is the. Yeah, John Araglasio. Well, he was a good player. Tall player, six foot four, six foot five. Really good player. Came out of Hawthorne, was it, Clarko? Hawthorne and also Old Scotch. Yeah. And involved with the front bar and also 3AW. So he's done a fair bit of off field stuff yeah. there. But also. Not only that, big names, in, including all the people he had off-field. BT, you can go through on the people that were involved with racing, involved yeah. in the Herald Sun, John Anderson. Ando's really well-known. Ando Tim was Hable. a selector what, there, Timmy Hable. What is it that drew those sort of guys? Say so John Anderson, Tim Hable, you've already pointed out, um, Neil Donnelly, uh, Adrian Dunn, Pat Bartley, Andrew Garvey. These were all guys that were senior paper journalists with either the Age or the Herald Sun concentrating on racing, with the exception of Ando, who did general sport. They were all there. We had every copper in Melbourne watching Paran games. For some reason, the two blues, as they were known, attracted the, the local constabulary, didn't they? The, no doubt about that. And actually, it's interesting because Ando was a selector too, and he was the best selector of all time because Trevor Mitchell, who uh, related to Barry Tom Mitchell's Mitchell, brother. Barry Mitchell's brother and, and uncle of Tom Mitchell, Ando uh, dropped him, single-handedly dropped him, and uh, Trevor Mitchell came up to Ando and said, I can't believe I'm not not in the side, Do- dominated last week, 28 possessions. He said, you're spot on. BT overruled me. <laughs> <laughs> this went on a lot because I remember the time that Mick Atkins, so Tom Atkins who plays at Geelong, his dad Mick Atkins and I think Steve Perry and myself, Clarko, were in a uh, you know high-powered uh, selection meeting in there at the Pran Rooms and uh, I wanted Mick in but I think you two wanted him out and, of course, when he found out he was out, the door was taken off the hinges as he came into protest and there was a little bit of fisticuffs going on in the selection room with uh, with Mick Atkins, the and father of Tom. Ah, uh, yes, half 
enough time in this episode of The Life of Brian. Now, I'd like to give this message. I'd like the opportunity to talk about our great friends at Grimley's, the number one source for fasteners and construction supplies in Melbourne. If you're on a construction site and need product urgently, then you can count on Grimley's Direct. Getting your orders to you on time, every time at speed with our fleet of Grimley's vans and trucks direct from us to you. It's that simple. Grimley's has been in the game for more than 30 years, earning a reputation built on grit, determination, and a focus on delivering the best sourced fasteners and construction supplies with a whatever-it-takes type attitude. Uh, whether it's a large commercial job, a small domestic little project, hard-working tradies need the right products at the right time. Grimley goes above and beyond to deliver on the details. Grimley's always aims for the best solutions to your products. Go to grimleys.com.au for delivery that you can count on. Just one more name, Derek Hine. Oh, yeah, recruiting guru at Collingwood, list manager for many years. 20 years involved there and still got a high-profile job now. It's actually interesting with Decker because I know we'll get into a few stories. I'll just tell a really quick one now. Decker, in BT's last game, we're playing North Port Oval, really muddy condition. Winner goes all the way to the grand final on the fast deck. To, this is 93? This is nine. This is 91. So it's 91. back. It's, it's Sorry, 92. It's BT's last game. So it's bigger than big. You've got a massive crowd there, Harrison, a huge, huge crowd. Now, 22 minutes in the last quarter, we could not win it. BT knew it was his last game. I knew it was his last game. And then he saw fit to take out three or four of the Williamstown players that kept on coming his way. That's not true. And the supporting mechanism was you had 10,000 people cheering and yelling and and carrying on, thinking this place just completely lost I don't remember. Uh, This was completely verbatim. When you say taking them down, you mean? uh, Mike Tyson style, Harrison. (laughs) He's beating them. No backward step. And I'll tell you now, a few might have come up, but the big fella and strong bloke just uh, issued a all off, and then Decker ran downstairs. Der- Decker I, is Derek, Derek Hine, is the Decker Hine. head recruiting man. Head recruiting man, twenty years at Collingwood, was the number one recruiter there. Then on the phone with the message, Johnny, you're going to have to go out and sort this out and calm him down. So I've never had ten thousand eyes on me like this. I've gone out there, BT's in a fit of rage, a very vulnerable runner, very a very vulnerable runner. Got out then and just had that quiet moment where I thought, how, what's the reaction going to be? And I got to BT about 10 metres away. I thought, I've got to tread warily here, see how we go. And you could see the steam still coming out of his eyes and his ears. And I thought, I'm in a dangerous spot here, Ten front of 10,000 people. He's going to belt the runner. <laughs> <laughs> so I moved one step at a time, very treading very, very warily, thinking, what sort of reaction i got to get? I've got 10,000 eyes on me. It's going to be front page of the Herald Sun tomorrow. How am I going to cope with this? But he's no he has to come to me because I'm the coach, right? So spot on. I, I have to have have to get out there. He'd been reported four times, but it didn't matter to his last cape and he's going out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> so I got to BT thinking, how are we going to go here? And just as we're sitting here now, Harrison, you could not get a more laid back, relaxed manner. Johnny, <laughs> totally in control. This is all sorted. It didn't look like it was in control. <laughs> Did we win the game? No, we lost by three goals. Uh you helped us early, but certainly not in the last quarter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a bit of a habit of uh, – I do remember the day that um, – you may remember this. Oh, Smithy, you might remember this. I was – we were playing at Paran at Turak Park, which was our home ground for Paran, and for some reason I remember I was I was reported in the third quarter. Quarter ended. We went over, addressed the team, came back out to play the last quarter, but I think a report or something meant that you were sent off. So I've gone back out to start the game 
and I'm refusing to go off because no one's told me that I had to go off when I was reporter. You know, they didn't, no one come over and officially. So the umpires are waiting to start the game and refusing to start the game until I'm escorted off the ground. Anyway, the police horses come out on the ground to escort me off. I got escorted off with a couple of, you know, bloody police horses. Do you remember that, Smitty? I, I do. And there's great footage. Jump on YouTube now. I there think I've seen this. That. Like genuine horses on the field escorting yeah. Brian Taylor off. <laughs> but the, the thing that struck me, I watched him, I didn't quite know that it would be a send-off case, but I thought he's got his back to the whole ground. He's going to make someone walk the maximum amount of distance to do, <laughs> yeah. to br- bring the gavel down, and he did. He walked as deep as he could <laughs> to the bottom of the square or the top of the square. Yeah until all of the umpires came up and removed him from the ground and oh. the police horses sort of trotted off behind Very him. embarrassing. My wife, your mother, is sitting in the stand watching all this thing going, who is this guy? <laughs> the interesting postscript to that story was that at that time you had to attend the tri- tribunal on Tuesday night. Brian was still running his plumbing business and he'd be given cards door to door, getting out in the streets, doing the hard yards, saying if you need a plumber, BT's your man. So on the Monday... BT's going to the tribunal on, on the Tuesday night. He'd gone done the whole streets in and around the area. What he didn't realise, the number one tri- tribunal chairman was a bloke by the name of Brian Collis. Brian Collis goes to pick up his morning paper and gets season note in there with a business card, BT for your plumbing services. <laughs> what Brian oh, didn't realise, <laughs> the following night, of course, the great man was in front of him and he had to make a tribunal find him. So he's thinking – thinking to himself, this place coming to the tribunal to me tomorrow, is this some sort of threat? Is this some sort of carry on here? <laughs> Needless to say, got four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember one, 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 there was one tribunal story. This is a true story. I won't mention the guy's name because I don't want to embarrass him. Is um, this AFL time? Uh, this, no, this is Paran time right. uh, that, that he's still practising, by the way. I think he's a KC uh, now. Um I remember I was reported anyway um, on, on Sunday night. I went home and I was a plumber in Hawthorne at the time and I got a phone call from this guy saying, look, uh, my hot water surface burst. Could you come around and look at it now? I said, mate, I'm not coming now. I'm watching 60 Minutes. He said, well, it's leaking all over the ground. I said, mate, grow up, turn the tap off and I'll be there at 8.30 in the morning. He said, but you're 24 hours. I said, yeah, but not tonight. Anyway, so I rolled up there the next morning, beautiful suburb, leafy suburb in the, in queue there, you know, double tree-lined street with quadruple garages, magnificent properties, a very expensive exclusive area and um, I knocked on the door and the guy opened the door and he said do you know who I am I said no I don't sir who are you he said I'm the tribunal chairman sitting on your case tonight for the headbutting charge and I said Jesus that's a coincidence and he said no it's not do a good job and don't leave an invoice I did both of those things and got off on a technicality that night that is a true story you that can't a- headbutt people man <laughs> that actually, oh, it was just a momentary coming together of uh, heads but uh, yeah that's that's. anyway a- this was a nice introduction but we've got some serious business to cover there is one missing off that list yeah you've got to remember it. name Annette Coote oh yes first female president in the VFL we VFL. were ahead of our time ahead of our time Head of she, our time. She was the first female president, I think, of any club. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Any high-ranking yep. club yep. or club in Australia. What, what's she doing now? Great question. Don't oh, know. Don't but know. she was she was good. Yeah, she right. really uh, made big news at the time. It was quite quite big news at the time that uh, Annette had come along and uh, taken on the mantle of what was very much a, a male domain uh, situation then, wasn't it? Yeah. It was very... But she didn't want. She didn't. She just did all the stuff in the back room. Yeah. She just didn't want any notoriety. She pushed yep. all the players. She was a ripper. All them, all yep. them, you know, anyone that yep. uh, came along and was prepared to support Peran, she was all for it. But as I said, moving on to getting to the bottom of a couple of these stories, and the big one that looms is the bugging of the away change rooms. The what? 
You've the heard bugging it. of the away change rooms. Boys. We yeah. might have to prompt BT's memory on this. This is this is 91, Harrison, oh, this one. And can't be We right. came up against it, uh, Turak Park. We came up against the all-raging Werribee football team that had won 10 in a row. So we thought we're going to have to go an angle here. Bear in mind it's a different point time. difference. Need we a need, point of difference. Yeah. It's 30 years ago. So for all statutes of limitations, it's off, off the table here now. <laughs> yeah. So what we'd managed to do, we we parked a car at Turak Park and the opposition changing rooms at that stage were on the other side side of the ground. So we thought, we can't beat this mob 10 in a row. We've got a couple out. We need everything going for us. So we set ourselves up where we bugged the opposition rooms and had that set up and we had a car on Steve the other Perry, side. Steve Perry, I think, was involved in I think in this. Steve Perry might have had his finger fingerprints all over this one. Shame he's not here, Steve, to justify his existence. <laughs> former <there>. Richmond player. <laughs> former Richmond superstar. And we set up, so pre-game, just before we go into our match committee meeting in terms of our, our, our team meeting before we run out on the ground, we're sitting in the car getting clarity of every single move where are we going to make. What do, you, you, what do you mean just, you're getting clarity? You're listening on We something. are listening absolutely so, on the radio. So where, the frequency is Where did Steve put the devices? In the what are the devices? Yeah, the devices like are a, a very clear lipstick type microphone that uh, radioed beautifully in a car on the frequency. So we had it as clear. People thought we were sitting in the, in the where car Where did you place the them? These were placed in the opposition rooms and we had the coverage of clarity better than FM on the dial in terms of every move they were making, every rotation, every positional setup, every player they wanted to target from our side, wrote it down all diligently. So you were in the inside. car taking notes, are you? I may have been in the car or somewhere near the car. <laughs> <laughs> at Don't the incriminate time. yourself. We had every note, war and peace, as we went into BT. BT might be in denial, but this is exactly what happened. Steve Perry opened it up and went through exactly what was going to happen in terms of the setup, in terms of the breakup. Went absolutely beautiful. He had all Werribee's game plan. Everything went to the letter, except one minor problem, Harrison. Quarter time, we're six goals down. <laughs> I was going to ask if you won. <laughs> oh, I think we got beaten by 10, We didn't got we? beaten easy. The footnote to that is, is Leon Harris, who coached the team at that For, time. Former Fitzroy former player. Former Fitzroy player and an absolute ripper. I see him every day at the park, and I said this story might get a little bit of a mention. He said, Johnny, make sure you tell BT that that year, <laughs> even if we had a let you two blokes, <laughs> even if we had a play too short, we still would have had you no problem at all. Make sure you let him know that. <laughs> so Leon Harris was, a, as I said, a former Fitzroy player, long-time elite um, uh, underage coach at, you know, under-18 level and I think he looked after the AFL talent pathway program. Um, and still does. And still does. Heavily involved in recruiting still. Yeah, yeah. good man. Day. So that, that was the bugging of the rooms, which did which I think I'm we not, need a formal apology which to I, the, the well, Werribee team of 1991. Well, <laughs> well, I can't remember doing it, and I don't remember doing it, and I don't no, remember taking been, any part in couldn't it. Couldn't have been Steve you. Steve Pirrie, for sure. <laughs> the, the next one I wanted to hear about is one of the preseason camps. You took the, the you took the mob down to Walhalla, and there was a bit of there was a few issues post that trip with. Um, so Walhalla is a place that you and I know well because we we've do. been going there for forty years. We do, and it's a beautiful little. And you and I have always thought this is the best training ground in Australia for a bit of a boot camp. That's that's what we thought. Hill, that, hills, back yeah. roads, four drive rivers, tracks, rivers, and that's why we went there. Hmm. Well, you'd probably taken a fair bit out of Collingwood on how to structure this weekend. Yeah, so absolutely. 
Everything ran like clockwork. We had Terry Drew, who was a former member of the SOG, the Special Operations yep. Group. And he worked them hard, yeah. like really hard. And the boys come Saturday night, flaked it. There was no shenanigans, no drinking, very little much past about 8 o'clock at night. They all hit the, hit the sack. We stayed up for a little while longer. Yep. But I knew there was something in your mind the next day of what you wanted to do because you wouldn't tell us exactly what the setup was. But you had that look about you, that glint in your eye that you used to get when you were thinking of something. So sure enough, it it came true. So and before you get to the next day, but that morning at about, must have been about two o'clock in the morning, whenever you heard the whistle, you had 60 seconds to have your runners get on, out of bed. get out of bed and be in the, in the form-up area. And I reckon, Johnny, at about 2 a.m., we've let the whistle go. And everyone comes piling out of their beds at two o'clock in the morning. You know how dark it is at Wallala. And we all line up and Terry drew the uh, guy from the special operations. And goes, Righto, boys, we're going for a bit of a run uh, through town. We ran through town, he making carrying the bricks, making them do push-ups on the middle of the road, waking yeah. on the bridge, yeah. Yeah. waking yeah. all the residents of Wallala <laughs> up at two o'clock. People thought something was going on that we were being overtaken by the Germans or something, <laughs> uh, the, the, some sort of a high-ranking overtake. But we, we got them up and uh, the idea was to try and tire them out. So by the time they got up to your point, Smithy, up at 8 o'clock in the morning, they were knackered. They were. They were. But there was still a full day. We weren't leaving there till 4 o'clock. And it gave us a little bit of an idea that morning that it would involve probably something around a 15K trek across a, some sort of mountain yep. out the back. So they were loaded up with bricks, ladders and anything else that they – groups of four. And logs. They went. We had logs. logs. Yep. And in these days you would, you'd have GPS trackers. You would know where every bloke was. <laughs> yeah. But we set off at about 9.30, 10 o'clock. We sent them off in groups, didn't we? In groups. Yeah. But there was a fair, bad, a fair distance between the groups as the time went on. Maybe 15 if, minutes. Yeah. Yep. Well, the fittest guys went quickly and the slower guys – I hung back with a few of the slower guys, but I had a bike – so I could sort of go up and back as far as I could get. But anyway, this is sort of this goes to the point where we were very well serviced by the media. We could pick up the phone and get on into the media at any time we wanted. But we were also a lightning rod for the media if we wanted to. And this is my point. One of the young blokes, first year, Rover, he was in a bad way when he got back. Real bad way. <laughs> what are we talking? We're talking shivering. We're talking malnourished. We're talking, didn't take enough water out. He hasn't eaten enough. Because we didn't let him take water bottles or anything, right? No water bottles. <laughs> and they'd gone through rivers, so they're wet. Yep. And all of a sudden they'd get cold. Because then, they'd stopped probably. But then they'd hit yeah. the top of the mountain and they'd dry out, but then they'd get cold again yeah. from their sweat, yeah. wouldn't well, they? Well, there was a misty rain that came in the afternoon and a, quite a biting wind. <laughs> So by the time so we're a few talking of these boys got ma- back, malnourished, dehydrated, yep. uh, bordering on yep. hypothermia. Yeah. Well, no, he was hypothermic. He yep. was, <laughs> and he had seven or eight mates who were also in the same condition. Yeah. So we had six or seven guys. I remember it very vividly. Mm. At the end of the day, they come in just with a little bit of a shiver, but within an hour. It had blown to full time. <laughs> but um, of course, you would have had the nurse on standby or the no, doctor. No, we didn't have a nurse. They were off duty that weekend. <laughs> well, I don't what, think there's a nurse on my what, What's the thing called? What did you say it was called? What? When you shiver? Hypothermia. hypothermia. We had and six to seven guys that were in deep hypothermia, weren't they? What did we do? Did we? Well, it? what happened was um, you, magnanimous of you, gave them training off the Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Get better, boys. Got, have the night got off. Got better of it. So we rehydrated at the Orong, which was the hotel. So we got back to, to Melbourne. Yeah. I don't think we even unpacked the truck. 
and we went straight, which is probably the worst thing we could do is not get water into these blokes. We would get gallons of beer into them. We were pretty dumb. So uh, Monday off and nothing really has happened. We've reviewed a bit in our own minds how it went. But I'd get in on a Tuesday and I'm the only one there. So I open up the door and if I knew at 9 o'clock that the answering machine light was blinking, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So lo and behold, I press the button and this particular young rover's mother is on the line and she says, I just want it known that I we, me, my husband and I are completely and utterly disgusted at this camp that you've run on the weekend. It all seems as if there was no supervision. My son has been in uh, at the local GP for another three hours this morning, three hours yesterday, trying to get his blood sugars back to normal. <laughs> this thing went for about four and a half minutes. And as for what your coach said in the paper this morning. What did I say? Well, here it is. I ran down the news agent and I grabbed it. <laughs> now, I, I relate this back to the media, good for bad. Well, this is where the media just all over him. AD has rung you and said, BT, there's some news coming through that half a dozen blokes have ended up with hypothermia post the Walhalla camp. <laughs> and I've read through the paper and the first three paragraphs are about how magnificent bonding exercise it was, <laughs> what a wonderful setup it is for the 93 season. But when AD questioned you about the state that some of them had returned in, you haven't used the hypothermia word. You've just referenced to a few getting a little cold. <laughs> <laughs> a it little made the cold. Adelaide camp look that like Tedley Weeks. So my memory of that, you said 15Ks, that was a 25-kilometre circuit carrying logs in teams of about six or seven each or maybe four or five teams, and they had to complete uh, a river crossing, a river swim, mm. the run. Uh, they had to climb using a hand-over-hand -hand rope up a railway concrete pillar, which was vertical, about probably about 10 metres off the ground. And I remember there was a guy by the name of Stuart Mackey who we had playing for us, and it was tough, Harrison. Even you, who are really fit at the moment, hand over hand on this rope that's about 50 mil thick, maybe even a little bit thicker, got to the top, couldn't get the last hand up, fell all the way down mm. into a stream that's about 300, are so lucky that 300 mil deep. And not only that, the, the footing of the pillar kicked out at the bottom. He hit the concrete pillar, uh, broke his shoulder in about six places, and um, we, we said, well, can someone get a car <laughs> and ship him back to Melbourne? But we must continue on. <laughs> and he, he had to sit there for there an hour. There is no duty of care in he this waited camp. For a, he, he waited for a car, some old, some old guy going to mow him. How uh, did the season go after the big pre-season camp? Uh, we went fantastic. Didn't want to go for the year. No, that's not true. We actually, the great thing about it is we had some great times and ripping bikes and actually had some success. Yeah. We were right up there. We didn't didn't pull one off. We didn't get to a grand final, but we always ran thereabouts. Speaking of the media, and I alluded to this earlier, you were working, Brian, you were working at 3UZ at the time, which is a, a radio station. Yep. You boys were telling me just before off air about um, how he used to try and get a little bit of oomph in his coverage and a little bit of background on that, perhaps. There's probably two parts to that story. We would train, we might have a bit of dinner and then BT would go off to the station that night. So he'd What, what kind of hours was he working? I reckon what? 10 to 12 was the great so, Yeah, 10, 10 p.m. Yeah. at night till yeah. midnight and yeah. then I'd come back and do the 5.30 till 7, I think, in the morning. I was yeah. doing double shifts. Yeah. yeah. But my reflections of the night shift, if he'd had the shits, 
during the day we hadn't signed a player or lost a game or someone hadn't turned up or money was tight and we couldn't pay. Because we had all those problems at this level. Oh, this was this was a confluence of problems day by day. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew, and I if I saw him really steam off in the uh, in the purple Valiant, I think he had the Holden or the Commodore or whatever he had, I'd think heaven help the first caller that has a chip in him <laughs> during a bit of callback <laughs> that night. And sure enough, it was often reflective that night of his his response to the punters that would ring in and complain about something would get a short shrift or a reasonable answer, depending on the mood that he'd left the rack park in. But when he took over the uh, – did the fill-ins for the morning show, he actually had a bit of spring in his step. He actually enjoyed the double shift. He enjoyed – everything was sort of pulling together quite nicely. But he would bound in to Turak Park about 9.30, quarter to 10, and uh, he'd say, Smithy, drop whatever you're doing. So what do you want me to do? And he'd say, ring that number there. And it's a uh, 3UZ switchboard. And he'd say, tell them that you're Gary from Croydon and that you're listening what, to What, was beat. a recorded message or something, was it? No, no, you'd ring ah, the switchboard. Right. And you told me, and I distinctly remember you said, the instruction of the girl on reception was to copy word for word what the person said oh, right. who rang in. <laughs> so I had, I had this script in front of me. Yeah, Gary from Croydon here, um, just want to let you know that I've been listening to BT this morning and uh, certainly think he's got it over the other host. Oh, this um, is bullshit. No, it's not. It's <laughs> this not. Is nonsense. She'd say, okay, is that all? And I'd say, yep. Then you'd leave the room, you'd go and make a coffee, you'd come back and you'd say, right, eh, you're now Tom from Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 19, early 1990s version of a burner account. <laughs> he's just trying to give himself a rep up. I do remember one thing. Callers. We were running at 3Z, the greater 3Z, we were running a competition to win a Greg Norman golf bag. Greg Norman was in town at the time, beautiful Cobra golf bag, I think it was at the time, beautiful bag. I won't tell all the story for fear of self-incrimination, but we <laughs> been a bit of that today. <laughs> it's fair to say I had eyes for that golf bag, right? <laughs> and the person that won that golf bag never really collected it. <laughs> but I've still got it in my garage yeah, at home. It's in the shed. <laughs> oh, some of the dodgy competitions we ran uh, in those days. But Tom from Richmond was instructed to say. If three UZ management are considering a change in the morning, me and the mates on the building site vote for BT. <laughs> yes, go BT. <laughs> yeah, oh, far it, out. it was all those things you had to do just to get the edge. <laughs> was there anything else you boys wanted to harp on and perhaps expose Brian a little bit more? We had great fun at the at the luncheons and also some of the Camel Club nights that we had and Dickie can talk about the, the local the reaction of the neighbourhood. <laughs> so what we had was we had lunches, you know. So like what's a, a camel club? Is a that camel that? club was a, effectively a social club that we had at Turak Park at the ground that was really well known, wasn't it? Very and, well known. And, and, it came from far and wide, BT. And well attended on game day and some other independent social nights as well. It was only a small room, wasn't it? It was probably 20 metres by 20 metres. But the neighbours didn't think it was that small. No. But the one you ran used to go in that old brick building up at the yeah. Brantonians, yeah. which was adjacent to the coach's box, the timekeeper's box, and then this open terrace area. So you always talk about a spring in the step. He always had a spring in the step when he's fr he probably had one, maybe two in this particular year. But he really enjoyed the fact that the blokes would all get together and there was a fair bit of female company. We had great camaraderie, well. yeah. Um, but I wouldn't go. I'd just leave. I'd be happy to end the week on that note and just say, BT, lock up that door there, that door there, and make sure we don't get into any trouble. I had to be there because I'm assuming I was helping organise well, it. Well, you were the, yeah, you were the MC, the, the host. The chef convener. Yeah, yeah the, the, the door locker at the end. 
But again, walk in on the Monday and if, if the answering machine's blinking like mad, I know something's wrong. <laughs> I've been summoned to the council for an emergency meeting <laughs> post noise complaints from Friday night. And I thought, geez, what's this involve? So I was to go and see a guy called Ken at the, uh, at the council. I walk in, I sit down, the meeting started. The meeting is specifically at the council about our behaviour on the Friday night. I didn't want to take the rap for it, but I have to. I'm the face of the place. So I walk in, I sit down. There's an agenda item of future of Pran Football Club at Turak Park. The future of. <laughs> <laughs> and I've kind of glanced down at this thing and I thought, I haven't got the backstory yet. I haven't even spoken to him since Friday night. So sure enough, we got down to the litany of complaints. But the one that stood out to me was the um, not so much the car screeching, car screeching at the end of the night, the foul language as taxis drove off, not willing to pick up the punters, the noise and the music blaring until 2 a.m. And these were the words. So what was your real problem? Well, I had to explain the intermittent sounding of the siren to the beat of the music. <laughs> <laughs> like an alarm clock every half an hour going beautifully. Big Ben had arrived at brand. <laughs> uh, intermittent sounding of the, yeah. uh, of the siren. No, it was a great club. But just to finish great that, I would rarely, if ever, and you boys, you four boys would know this, you've got to have your shit together if you're going to front foot the great man. And I thought I had the enough arsenal I had a copy of the the agenda from the council meeting and I thought, I'm going to have to have a crack at this. He's not going to host another one of those. He can get away with anything. Anything. Yeah. So I'm halfway through my spiel about what I've just gone through and been pinned up against the wall at the council and he's just cut me off mid-sentence. <laughs> and he's gone, do these people realise how important it is for the boys to get together and bond? <laughs> Bugger the local residents. <laughs> Rain, were you ever a BNF or like a team of the cent- team of the decade or anything like that? No, I only there three years. Yeah. Well, I, I played for Pran. I played three seasons. Yeah, you mm. played. But I played four, four or five seasons. Oh, uh, yeah. Did you win a best and fairest? Yeah, season? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> team, team of the decade. Yeah. Harrison, he was a very good player. I remember driving this on a Sunday. We played Oakley. And Oakley were the poorest team in the, in the competition. And BT had had a bit of a day out. I think I can. Helped himself to 16. Yeah, 16. Yeah. So I'm driving on the Monday morning to, to work there and I look in, at that stage you used to have the Herald Sun, the big headlines and, and the caption would be in the window of the news agencies right, to yeah. sell all, all the papers because it was a really big deal. And I drove past one day, star kick 16. And I thought, gee, John Coleman must have made a comeback or, <laughs> or whatever. And, and get in there and scurry to the front page. I thought, this is going to be a big big story. It was BT, he'd kick 16. Harrison, you could have wandered out now in and kicked 12 without any train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah no, very was, well there, done. Was, there was some tough, tough opposition. Tough players played in the VFA in those days. Before my time, Harrison, uh, before all of our time, so probably in the 70s, it was unbelievably tough. And very seen as very unfair in a lot of cases. So it was a it was a tough league. One well, umpire that, system too. Yeah. Well, lads, just to wrap up here and put a, put a bow on this at um, the life of Brian, we're brought to you by Grimleys. Their calling card is that they go above above and beyond. When has has someone at the Pram Football Club gone above and beyond? That'd be me. <laughs> it would be BT. <laughs> well, for mine. For mine, Smithy, it'd be Tim Hable. You can talk about Timmy Hable, who was yeah. the number one journal at that stage. Former uh, racing journalist for the Herald Sun. Um, huge and president of the club for so many years, a volunteer uh, above and beyond. He was my player sponsor. 
Really? When I played. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Tim Hayward, great man. Great man. Well, I think he clearly goes to the Grimley's values because he was a guy that had no real reason to work out a payment plan, a long-term payment plan for players that had well past the club. They'd left the club. You're there now and it's an amateur club, but he still kept enough of a record of what we owed and it was, they sig- paid every it was significant. Debt. Yeah, through Tim. Clearly Tim yeah. would would certainly go to that above and beyond you know value because right now he could walk in and confidently walk in to any social setting or football setting and he would know that no one has got a claim or a call yep. on us. It's incredible what those volunteers at community footy clubs do for, for no payment just mm. to, to be involved in, in the club and a, a sense of purpose and those type of things. They're not asking for money or a Every club, bat. regardless of the level, has got at least one. Yep. Go yeah. to go to grimleys.com.au for delivery you can count on. Jono, Smithy, thank you very much for having us. It's great fun. Yeah, thank you. Great fun, boys. Great fun. A lot of those stories, not necessarily the way I knew them, but anyway. (laughs) 